Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and baddest days of the world. I'm your co-host, Cass Clark, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a very special guest, Richard Newby. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Thank you for coming on. on. So today we're going to be talking about disfigured face reveals in horror, which is such a fun topic. And I would love to know, Richard, why this was the one that like spoke to you that you're like, oh, we have to go here. We have to dig in. (laughs) I honestly think it's like one of the things that like made me fall in love with horror in the first place. Just like, you know, growing up, you know, reading fairy tales and then comic books. Like, I think part of the reason why I was always like so into those stories is like, I love the concept of a mask and just like what it's hiding and like something underneath there. And I remember just like, you know, as a kid watching Batman, the animated series and like seeing the the Two-Face episode, you know, where he's all bandaged in the hospital. And then you have the reveal with like the, the lightning strike. And like, that was just like such a striking thing for me. And then, you know, Dr. Doom and like his whole deal and like, mm-hmm. you know, what's behind the mask. I love that concept. And then so that just felt like a natural trajectory to, you know, films like Phantom of the Opera and the, the universal horror films where you often had these people wrapped in bandages. And there's just like this fascinating idea of what's underneath. Um, and then also like the Twilight Zone episode, I Am the Beholder. That was probably one of the yeah. first episodes I saw. And that just like really stuck with me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I've always just had this like fascination that eventually like led me to the slashers and all of that stuff. But yeah, I just, I love the concept of the mask and like what's behind it, you know? It's so good. It's such a fun one too. Cause it like, I feel like intentionally or not, it brings in questions like identity questions, like uh, what do we project on this person? Like all this like needy stuff. So I'm really excited to dig in. You ready to kick us off with the history? Yes, very cool. Um, <laughs> before we get started, I'm just going to put on some caveats because I'm going to miss a bunch of movies for this one because it's a finding the face reveals like just Google spoilers for every film yeah. that has ever <laughs> existed. <laughs> um, so we're going to be sticking to horror films like well, Mission Impossible has some cool face reveals. Um, <laughs> we're leaving those out like Sting removing his Sting mask to reveal it was Sting all along during TNA <laughs> and possibly the greatest gif of all time. We're going to leave that out. Um, we're also leaving out like just Scooby-Doo type unmasking. So like uh, mm-hmm. Cass and I both really love Scream, but it's not going to make the list because the face underneath is not disfigured. Mm-hmm. It's just Billy and Stu. Um, also, just before we get into it, there's going to be a ton of spoilers. The face reveal is almost always a pivotal moment. Uh-huh. Um, so lots of spoilers coming up in the history. And one last real note, um, I was reading from Brianna Schunk on the Crypt Up uh, Horror of Halloween movies. Mm-hmm. And she did point out that so disabled people are the, the implication of a lot of uh, early movies, especially is that disabled people are inherently cruel because of their disability. And because of that, they seek to punish those who are not disabled. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit as well throughout. Mm. Um, so let's get into our movies. So the first one I could find, and I think probably the first face reveal on film, is uh, Phantom of the Opera 1925 with Lon Chaney Sr. starring in an adaptation of Gaston LaRue's 1910 novel by the same name. It's an astonishing moment. Uh, We covered it way back in our jump scare episode as maybe the first jump scare too. Um, So Chaney has his mask pulled off and it reveals his his grotesque face. And it's kind of like inspires a lot of the stuff going on after this. And Richard, you had mentioned some universal horror had face reveals, which I kind of missed when I was doing my history. Do you have any off the top of your head? 
Bride of Frankenstein, she has the the bandages on, you know, at first, mm-hmm. and the Invisible Man. There's that, you know, iconic yeah. scene where he's laughing and, you know, unraveling his his bandages. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great one. Um, but yeah, the 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 Phantom of the Opera one, like that one, has always stuck with me, in part because like it is horrifying and like you do jump, but it's also like so tragic. You know, like he's yeah. really trying to express himself, and you know he's he's in love with Christine, and yeah, just her her horror I think is almost like more shocking than his face in some ways. Just her mm-hmm. reaction, I think that's part of also something that goes into these face reveals is the reaction of the person looking at it. It not only kind yeah. of like builds suspense, but I also feel like it does create this kind of sense of of, of empathy. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, from there, we'll hop to 1953 with House of Wax. Vincent Price stars as a murderer who eventually reveals his scarred face beneath the wax Vincent Price face he's been wearing. Um, Vincent Price loves you, so we'll see him a couple more times on this list. Um, 1960, we had Eyes Without a Face, which will be our first breakout film. We'll talk about a bunch. Psycho also had a very, I don't know if you'd call it, it's not an unmasking, but we have Norma Bates slowly spinning in her chair to reveal her mummified corpse's face. Mm. Um, 1960, we also had Eye of the Beholder, the Twilight Zone episode Richard mentioned a little earlier. Um, Rod Serling wrote that. And he also wrote the fifth season episode, The Masks in 1965, which had a very different face reveal with uh, this very angry old man telling his family they have to wear masks to get their inheritance. And when they <laughs> take the masks off, their faces are the shape of the mask, but it's also the shape that they've always been on the inside. Oh, um, yeah. The Twilight one. Zone did some cool stuff. Um, Oni Baba from 1964 is a great Japanese ghost story, which kind of offers a different cultural perspective, which we'll be getting more of with our second breakout film. We're back to Vincent Price in 1971 with the abominable Dr. Fibes um, starring Vincent Price, like I just said. Um, he's also in this uh, has a scarred face and he's committing outlandishly campy murders. It's a ton of fun. And it had a sequel in 1972, Dr. Fibes Rises Again. 1978, um, we had Halloween, which I waffled on including this one. Um, But a lot of the lists I was reading said that because it opens the POV of a murderer and we have the the ghost over Michael, it's kind of like a flip of the face reveal dynamic. Because instead of revealing a disfigured face, we reveal this little boy which is like the last thing we expect going into the film i'm curious y'all have thoughts on whether that should be on this list or not yeah i think i mean like i i feel like it is such a shocking moment because like it is playing with that idea of innocence and then i also feel like you know which we'll get to later i feel like it kind of ties in with with nori um when we talk about Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um so i think it yeah yeah i think it fits i think it's like Mm, if we're playing with the idea of the trope being like identity reveals uh, and surprising identity reveals being a part of of this, I think, yeah, I think it could, could count for sure. Um, from there we go to 1980, which is another one I'm kind of waffling on because it's not really a horror film. Uh, the Elephant Man, directed by David Lynch, has a very different kind of face reveal and that I don't think it's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to shock us how people treat John Merrick more than it's supposed to shock us that he looks in the way he does. 1981, Toby Hooper has a nasty face reveal in the Fun House. 1981 also had Friday the 13th Part 2 with the first grown Jason. He's running around with a burlap sack over his head. I love the sack. Yeah. (laughs) It's so good. 
bring the sack back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eventually it comes off and it's not in every film, I don't think, but it becomes an element of the Friday the 13th franchise where Jason gets unmasked. The burning from also from 1981 is classic exploitation, and Cropsey gets Cropsey's the killer and he's a burnt groundskeeper and his scarred face eventually comes up. That movie also stars a young Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter. Um, 1987, we get the first of these that I found. Um, it's a face reveal, but instead of a disfigured face, it's just a completely different type of face. Um, and the predator looks very, very cool um, and very scary as well. 1990, we get Darkman, Sam Raimi directing Liam Neeson in a kind of a superhero movie, kind of a horror movie. Liam Neeson is very scarred in that movie. 1991's Popcorn also has a face reveal. Silence of the Lambs in 1991 also kind of has one where Hannibal Lecter wears another man's face to escape prison and then Mm. takes the face off in the ambulance. Um, It's a great moment, although the film kind of falls short in its representation of trans characters. 1995, Castle Freak, directed by Stuart Gordon, um, is pretty horrific. Ringu in 1998 has a very horrific face reveal. It also seems like it's a big influence for Norai, which we'll talk about more later. 2001, David Lynch has a different kind of face reveal and kind of an all-time nightmare scene at Winky's Diner. The Orphanage in 2007, directed by J.A. Benea, has a really good one with Tomas. Trick or Treat, also in 2007. Um, Cass, I know Trick or Treat's your favorite movie. Do you want to describe this one a little bit? No, because if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil this one. It's fantastic. I love Sam. Sam forever. I'm so excited that Trick or Treat (laughs) 2 is in some stage of production. Give it to us. Finally. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) And then Hannibal in 2013. Well, I don't remember what year it was, but between Hannibal's uh, show from 2013 to 2015 um, has a very good face reveal with Mason Verger. Cure for Wellness has one in 2016. Jordan Peele messes around with one in Us in 2019 mm-hmm. with Pluto's face reveal. He does it again in Nope. Um, he really enjoys this trope. Haunt with, uh, from writer-directors Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who also wrote the original draft of A Quiet Place, has a very cool face reveal where they pull the masks off and the, the face underneath is the weird shape of the mask, not a human face. And it's a very cool moment. Um, in Midsommar, Ari Aster kind of does one, and he gets critiqued pretty hard for it, as does Jordan Peele for, for Nope and Us, because it's definitely a, a big topic of conversation now, like how do we treat people who are disfigured in film, and how do we treat people who are disabled in film? Oh, I, I almost forgot the Midsommar one. Uh, yeah, because the character's like in the shadows, then comes out of the shadows, yeah. right? Yeah, Ruben. It's like a very oh, brief yeah. moment. Um, and he's like the product of like however many generations of incest they say in the film. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. And I got most of this from uh, Vocal Media, Watch Mojo, and Screen Rant, but as well as help from the Ghoulish Discord. Thanks, Ghoulish. <laughs> You're all like great. Are there any films I missed? Any big ones y'all feel like are missing? I don't think so. I mean, I feel like it's such a, it's such a, I feel like it's a concept that can be very, very specific or very like broad. But I think the list you got was pretty good. Nothing's off the top of my head I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah, I think you, I think you covered all the main ones that I was thinking of. Very cool. Thank you. Eyes that a face. I'm just gonna read a quote from the movie, which I thought was just really great. First, I've done so much wrong to perform this miracle. Such a um, good line. <laughs> yeah, and I think having read about. I'm reading a book right now, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon by Joshua D. Mesrick. 
And I think that's like a pretty good way to describe a lot of the stuff we know about transplant surgeries, <laughs> why we can do them successfully now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, so let's do a synopsis, um, which this is, again, this is a hard one to give a synopsis for, because I think the first half hour of the film, we're not supposed to know what's happening. And it's really driven by this sense of mystery about what's going on. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, you should pause the podcast. Go watch the movie. It's a great movie. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the story of Christiane and her parents. She survived a massive car accident, which left her and her mother with horrible scarring. Her parents kidnap a series of girls, and her father, Dr. Gensier, attempts to transplant their faces onto Christiane's. And eventually, she kind of realizes what's happening and revolts. Um, it's directed by George Franju from a script from Gene Reedon's book by the same name, Reedon worked on the screenplay along with Pierre Boulot and Thomas Narjek. And those are the two who wrote the novels that inspired Diabolique and Vertigo. So a lot of classic film history in there. Also worked on the script was Claude Sete with Gear Gascar being credited for dialogue. The film starred Edith Scobe as Christiane Gensier, Pierre Brousseau as Dr. Gensier, and Alita Valli as Louise the Assistant. So let's just start out super basic. How'd you all like it? I really liked it. I... I was worried I wouldn't because I knew the premise and the setup going in. And I agree with you. I think like uh, when this came out, I think it was you were meant to go in not knowing anything. But I think it still held up even though I knew what the plot was, which made me happy. <laughs> I really liked it. Yeah, yeah I, I really liked it as well. I probably saw it for the first time maybe 10 years ago. I rewatched it for this and like it, it holds up really well. But like one of the things that like, still surprised me um that i kind of forgotten about it's just like in terms of the the face like transplant scene the surgery and the cutting like it's mm. pretty intense for 1960 yeah uh, you know it's pretty it's pretty impressive that they managed to do that uh with all the the censorship at the time yeah it's incredible i think i think the only thing that doesn't totally hold up is obviously when they take the first face off and underneath you can tell it's just like black ink on someone's yeah, face yeah. <laughs> you're like oh that's the blood but i think other than that there's like ugh, i'm like shivering even thinking about it but you can feel the texture of the rubber and like even watching you're like i know this someone literally put a rubber mask on an actor's face and they're gently like teasing with taking it off so it resembles skin but like really like that is kind of what skin looks like when it's off a body so it really does work and it's very unsettling yeah yeah so according to Stuart Weiss quoting Adam Lowenstein in the psychology of scary faces seven people fainted during a 1959 screening at the Edinburgh Film Festival during that scene <laughs> which I think is just uh, fun trivia because it was very intense for, for 1960. <laughs> yeah. I always think um, it's funny to hear stories about people fainting during like movies back then, just because I yeah. feel like nobody does that really anymore. I mean, <laughs> like you get like stories, like I heard that someone fainted during Terrifier 2 mm -hmm. and like during Mother, like, but I feel like it's kind of just like apocrypha that kind of like builds the hype. But like back right. then, you know, like I feel like people were legitimately fainting and it's just kind of funny, like, because they'd seen so little. And so like seeing that on the screen for the first time, it's just like an experience that they'd never had before. They couldn't even contemplate something like that. A hundred percent. I feel like now it's used as like a marketing ploy to be like, audiences vomited in their seats <laughs> yeah. and then shivered and ran home. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But no, I think, I believe they fainted in 1959. <laughs> 1959 for sure. Terrifier 2, I think it's a marketing gimmick. 
If you know anyone who who uh, fainted during Terrifier 2, please tweet at the podcast. We want to know if this is real or a marketing gimmick. <laughs> I think the, the that scene also works very well because it's shot so objectively, almost like a documentary. Like we're sitting far back and we don't move. I think it's just yeah. very effective for that. Yeah, and I think I was surprised there wasn't a cutaway because I was like, oh, they're not going to show it because then it would put a lot of focus on the practical effects. But I, I think because they didn't cut away, that is like you're waiting for that to happen. And when it doesn't, it that's where you're like, I don't know if I should still be looking. <laughs> yeah. So how does this fit in with our concept of the revealing the disfigured face? I mm. think, you know, when when we have the, uh, the first girl, I forget her name is uh, Edna. The first uh, girl that's kidnapped at the live, I would say. Yeah. Um, when Christiane like removes the mask and like it's she wakes up, she's been uh, giving chloroform and she, you know, kind of slowly waking up, and like you see this kind of like blurry vision of Christiane's face, and then you see, you know, the girl's reaction, and then you get like a quick shot of the face, which is actually like the practical effects there are really really well yeah. done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like that like kind of like back and forth that I love of like a quick glimpse of the face and here's the reaction, you know, a glimpse of the face and here's the reaction. And I feel like it works also because it's about halfway into the film, I think around like 40 minutes where you see it. So like this whole time, you know, her face has been obscured either by the mask and she's been laying face down on the bed or like we see the back of her head. And so like we're left to imagine it, you know, for the first 40 minutes, which I kind of love as well. And so I think that makes it, all the more effective when you see Edna's horror looking upon her. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think there's a lot of tension and pressure on that scene to hold up because of how often they teased, just like showing like the back of her head uh, and showing like her resistance to even look in the mirror and the, the even like little like parts of dialogue, like, you know, there's like shiny surfaces everywhere. Like, beware of butter knives. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at a butter knife to see the reflection. But but it's a, it put a lot of pressure on it. But I think it does hold up, and I think that they don't linger on it uh, too long. And I think it was smart to like like show her, and then it almost looks like she's like retracting back into the shadows, yeah. which makes yeah. it creepier. I think too. Yeah. So Christine has a, a line. Um, I don't remember if it's before or after that, but I just want to run it by y'all and see what you think. Mm-hmm. My face frightens me. My mask frightens me more. Did the mask or the 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 exposed face frighten you more? Oh God, I feel like the mask frightened me more. I could I could I could learn to live with that face. I think it was fine. I think like it's like like anything. Like if you see something that you're not familiar with, it just takes a second to like adjust or so. But that mask, I did not like it. I did not like it. I did not like how, like, you could tell. I think, and this is credit to the actor, too, because I think there was a rubber mask on, but, like, certain parts of her face would move and other parts of the mask wouldn't. And so it made me actually firmly believe that this person had, like, severe nerve damage in her face. And it's really unsettling to watch, like, uh, just, like, a face move, like, out of out of the way that I guess it should be moving technically. Um, and yes, creepy. Don't like. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just like, it's the like inhumanity of the mask. Yeah. Like I think like exposed, like even though like uh, I think it's her, her father, her first who has an open wound. 
mm. uh, which is like just like the worst way to describe it. <laughs> like it's not even it's yeah. not even that. Like it's just like, oh, honey, but, your like, face is an open wound. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's the it's just like the the blankness of the mask where there's just like you know there's 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 nothing there. And I I know that um, John Carpenter said that he and Deborah Hill. You know, he said that he he wasn't entirely sure where they got the idea for Michael Myers, you know, blank face mask from. And he said part of it was just like because it was cheap and they couldn't think of anything else. But he also said that he felt subconsciously that they had thought about eyes without a face in terms of that that blankness. Oh um, yeah. yeah. And and like you said, Cass, like it's I didn't I don't think I no- noticed this the first time I watched it. You know, because in my mind, like, I always kind of think of it as being, like, this, like, stiff, almost porcelain mask. But I really noticed this time, like, it does move, like, like, on her cheeks. And, like, part of it seems rubber. And that is really, like, weird and unsettling. Yeah. What do you think, Ryan? You have to answer your own question now. (laughs) What? Who said that? (laughs) Why do I have to do that? (laughs) I think the mask is definitely more frightening. I think Edith Scobe's performance is also just very ethereal. The way mm-hmm. she moves throughout and the way she's dressed and like the, it almost yeah. looks like a child's pajamas from like a 1950s picture book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just, it lands very well for me. And I just think her whole performance is great. I think she really plays it up. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I was watching the the interviews that came with the Blu-ray and the Criterion version of the, the movie. And Edith Scope said that after this, she had like a huge problem getting roles because even though she turned this great performance, nobody was looking for someone who could play like an ethereal creature in a mask they were looking for like someone who could portray emotion oh. so, like, it just wasn't like very she had to keep uh, she kept work- she didn't have to keep working friend she kept working friend because she kept casting her but like right after this movie even though it was a big hit she did not get like any roles afterwards uh, mm. yeah she good. Yeah, she did wonderful. I like, and speaking of like what Richard was saying about porcelain, I feel like even the way she moved felt like porcelain, which is like, sounds funny to say, but like, I was so worried that she would shatter when she was walking, like, just because like her, she just carried herself in such a way that I was like, oh, honey, don't bump into anything. Like, I'm like, going to break down. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Love her. Yeah. This is my last big question, I think. Um, I think what I like most about the film is the characters are very sympathetic, even the evil ones, and we can see their motivations. And so I love that like, we also get to meet the dad of the first girl who was killed. Um, so yeah. we, the one we see getting dumped. And I think it's like a, a reminder that these deaths are reverberating pain in a very cool way. Um, mm-hmm. Do y'all feel similarly with the characters kind of just working? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really like the, like, focus that they put on her father. And, like, they didn't do it in a typical, like, mad scientist way, which I feel like is what, like, an American film would have done mm-hmm. at the time. Yes. Um, You know, like, he is, like, a, a legitimate doctor, you know, and you actually see him at work doing, like, his actual medical practice. And, like, everybody thinks that he's, you know, just a, a normal guy. And, like, he has, you know, a, a place in the community, like, a family history. Like, his, his father was a lawyer that's, like, mentioned that, the fake funeral for for Christiane. So I like all those little touches that like really fleshed out his character as being a, a real person. So in the in the US, this was released as the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus. And one of the things they cut were those things you're mentioning, Richard. They cut the scenes with him like um treating the child to make mm. him more of a mad scientist and less of a, oh. a human doctor. Mm. Hmm. That's interesting. 
Yeah, I feel like keeping it in makes it even more creepy that you're like, you could have a doctor who like at work is doing everything correctly and at home is murdering children. <laughs> like, I think that that's for me actually makes it more unsettling, but I'm not surprised I cut it because it's just yeah. a less nuanced America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All okay. right. I had just a, this question because every, both times I've watched this movie, I thought the, Louise, the assistant, who she's only referred to as assistant throughout, was Christine's mother. Am I reading too deep? Is that in the text or am I making things up? I thought she was the I mother. I think her mom died in the car accident. Yeah. Okay. I think like I could see where you're thinking that because at first when I was watching it, I thought that too because I was like, oh, like, like my, my logic was like, he's telling everyone or at least we hear from other people that uh, at the funeral supposedly of his, of uh, Christian that her mother died. And I was like, well, I, I could buy into the idea that he would equally lie to the general public about her death because he just lied about his daughter's death. And she does have like scarring from a facial transplant. So maybe, but I, I kind of like it better if she did die because then it justifies mm. more of his like obsession to fix his daughter, you know, like he can't, bring his wife back from the accident he supposedly caused but he could perfect his daughter i said like that and just having her be a random assistant that for whatever reason after he like quote unquote fixed her like she's indebted to forever because she can't live with scars yeah i guess i read it as that he had faked his wife's death as well and the new face was why she was the assistant but i don't think that's in the text i think i'm making leaps yeah, maybe. I mean, I think you could, I think you could make an argument for either way. I guess like, what do you, which one would you rather is a good question, maybe. I feel like the way Luis acts implies to me like a familiarity, especially with the doctor beyond that of like a assistant mm -hmm. doctor relationship. It seemed more like a husband wife relationship. And I, I, I sense that like she, she wanted perhaps a relationship, mm -hmm. um, but I think like he's incapable of like feeling you know anything other than like his <laughs> obsession to like give his daughter a new face um but there is like a, a certain like gentleness and like tenderness to, to her character um like one of the things like i noticed near the end when the police show up to question him at the hospital you know they're the only two in the room that are, are conscious um and she like whispers in his ear you know he says like i i can't go right now and she like leans over and whispers in her, his ear and i felt like that was kind of just like a tender like i don't know it just like kind of like suggested that like perhaps she did have like some sense of, of love or longing for him yeah i definitely got that sense too where it's not just like um like in another version she would just be like the the weird creepy sidekick but she's still kind of it's she's still still weird still <laughs> killing people but <laughs> But I do, I, yeah, I got that sense of longing too. Or like, uh, maybe some unrequited love there. I could see that for sure. Because why else would she go to such extreme lengths? It's so yeah. All right, I got some trivia and straight thoughts for you all. Ooh, I like trivia. In an interview, Edith Scope said the mask took three hours to apply, and then it was on all day, and she had to eat her meals through a straw once the mask was on. Ugh. <laughs> To get the dogs to jump on the doctor at the end, they covered him with real meat. <laughs> <laughs> it inspired a Billy Idol song, which I feel like is kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, you all watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Mm, no, but I know your basic. I haven't, but I do know the music. Yeah. The yeah. music, it sounds, it's not 
the same composer, but it sounds so much alike that I expected Larry David to come out through like <laughs> half of the movie. <laughs> it is such an odd, like it's used for, I think like all of Louise's scenes when she's like mm-hmm. out and about like scoping out, you know, women to, to bring to the doctor. Like it is, it's such like, it kind of like, it has like this like circus tinge, yeah. you know, to it. Uh, it's, it's definitely like different from what I would expect, you know, the kind of like moody, you know, uh, kind of creeping dread music it's not that yeah yeah like you'd expect like a swell of like a piano or something yeah. um but instead it's just like which is very unsettling. unsettling yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> they remind me that scene specifically reminded me a lot of david lynch actually like the the ending um mm. like when she's just revolted and is like leaving the manor in a nightgown with no possessions and no money with the with the pigeons or doves uh and that music is playing and she's just like kind of floating off into the darkness and i was like this feels like david lynch watched this at some point um because just just i don't know how or why but it just feels like it has some of like the twin peaks soul in it somehow <laughs> yeah yeah i get that for sure yeah and like the thing that i i always think of with the ending you know, because it is like such a like an odd, you know, just her kind of like gliding out into the woods. Like the idea of just like this woman like in that mask, just like living in the woods, like that terrifies me. Just like the idea that it's just like somebody like at some point in the future could just be walking through the woods and like, oh, there's this woman in this like mask with like, like birds on her arms. <laughs> oh, I think man. it was Roger Ebert's review where he said like the ending is definitely not like the ending of a story, but like just a painting, like a very I beautiful like painting of the woman alone with a bird. But like you said, Cass, with, with no money. <laughs> no money. And no prospects. <laughs> and like you said, Richard, terrifying people in the woods. Right. Even though I think like she deserves our sympathy as much as her our fear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you could say like it's uh aside from being a cooler ending, I do like like the metaphorical implications where it's like she's breaking free from like the house that her father built and everything that that is implied that goes with that wealth and the things he's done so she's starting off on her own however if everyone that was in that house was dead and i had a manor i would just keep the manor <laughs> just yes. stay in it. yeah Sweet. <laughs> it's a choice <laughs> my last thought i think this would make a great mini series Oh. I think there's Ooh, yeah. so many characters and there's so there's so much depth to the characters. We could really dig into them more if we had like I don't think we need a remake or a requel of everything, but I think this right. would actually be a very cool thing to see be eight hours yeah. long instead of ninety minutes. I would love that actually. That's that's a great idea. Yeah, so I think um we didn't get too much into it, but like uh, I know in your notes, Ryan, you were talking about how complicit Christiana is. And yeah. I think it goes, you can go a lot of ways with that. Um, and I think that a miniseries would give space to show more of how she feels about that. And maybe if her feelings had changed over time, like if she was <laughs> into it for a bit, if she was oblivious, if she learned and didn't say anything, if she then decided like enough is enough. Uh, I feel like it's, I think this one at least makes it believable that she knows if she got a face that came from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that... Um, this is a more empathetic approach to it, but I feel like there's some darkness in her too that could have been explored a bit more in a, like For a longer sure. format. Yeah. yeah. Have you guys seen um, Watcher by Chloe Akona? Yes. Yes. I think that she would do a great like miniseries. Oh, like, I feel yeah. like the way that she just like handles 
you know, emotion and, and Michael Monroe's character and just like also just like playing in with the dynamics of like the investigation, the police and the mystery. I feel like that would be really Oh, cool. she'd be perfect for that because she's also really good at body horror. Like she yeah. again, like knows when to cut away and when to linger, which I feel like is kind of what body horror hinges on. Like if you have the good effects, please show them. But sometimes like less is more. Ah, I want that now. <laughs> <laughs> Do y'all have other things you want to okay. talk about in relation to eyes without a face? <laughs> well, I fell down a rabbit hole last night because I was just like, are face transplants real? They cannot be. Fun fact, they are. <laughs> Uh, and the weird thing that I thought about it too was like um, after doing some digging, I found out that the first successful face transplant surgery was actually from France. Um, and hmm. it was this woman named Isabelle Denoir. Uh, she lived for 10 years afterwards. It was a success. She ended up dying of cancer, not like face transplant complications. Although a lot of people that do try to get like face transplants, there's a lot of complications. Um and one fun fact about like Dinamar before I go on another tangent <laughs> is that a week after her surgery, uh, supposedly she overdosed. Um, it's very long ago, so I don't quite know. It's just what was reported at the time. Uh, but the media sensationalized it because the owner of the face that she now had, which is a weird way to explain it, uh, died by suicide. So there was like a bunch of like... Hmm uh mur like murmurs at the time where they're just like if you take someone's face there's some sort of like psychic social link uh from all i can see i do not yeah. think that it's true <laughs> that seems no but um the media ran with it for a bit um i was actually really impressed after i dug a little bit more into how well i think this film actually depicts what face transplants are like especially since it came out in 1959 and the like actual procedure wasn't uh, successfully done at least until 2005 the thing that they lifted is true that like you have like a short time of a window to see if your body accepts or rejects the skin graft because it really is a skin graft but it's just a very intense one because they have to uh, connect the blood vessels in the face nerves bone fat muscles skin tissue you need to make sure that the skin tissue is a match and that like the the blood type is a match as well because if any of these things go wrong your body can reject it and similar to what we see at the end of the film it you do start getting like cavernous like uh, i think they call it necropolis i think is the word i'm not sure but basically your face starts to necrosis. decay necrosis yes because the other interesting fact that the, the movie doesn't do in face transplants probably for legal reasons so they're not like pro-murder they do it's dead skin it's like someone who is like a tissue donor organ donor they will take the skin from their face so like technically that skin is it's, it's dead tissue it's not live tissue and it's dependent on the surgeon to connect all the living parts of that person that's accepting that face transplant for it to like be okay um so a lot of things can go wrong your body can reject it up to six months so i think the film also covered that well where it was like Christiane was fine for a time period with her new face. And then all of a sudden her body started to reject it. And some of the signs that they are showing in the movie are actually true. Where like, you'll, he calls it the blushing. Like when he's like, oh, you look like you have a blush. I was worried. What will happen is you'll start to get like redness and irritation. And then it'll start to like peel and decay. So I was really impressed that that was like all like accurate, <laughs> medically mm -hmm. speaking. Uh, and just a fun fact, apparently the USA, France, and Turkey are the leaders in this technology. America makes the most sense because it's our Department of Defense that funds it because it's uh, specifically really helpful for veterans because it helps with like, mm. well, the effects of war. 
So yeah, that was my little rabbit hole on face transplants, which is insane to think about. I don't know. I don't know if I had to get a face transplant. I don't know if I would want one because I don't like the idea of like someone else's face on my face. (laughs) Would you get a face transplant if you had to? Like if you were, if you're like your body was functional, but it was for more like aesthetic reasons, like the film, would you get a face transplant? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that I would. I don't know. It's just (laughs) such an, it's such an odd, I don't, I, I don't know if I, if I'd feel comfortable like looking in the mirror and seeing someone else's face. Right. If I'd rather just like have like a prosthetic like, a like i don't know if you guys saw like boardwalk empire but like harrow had that. oh yeah one of the characters on it had like a little like plastic cover thing yeah yeah i think i would take the phantom of the opera approach and just like get a, a mold that i think looks cool and that's it yeah <laughs> would i would need to know if you could have alcohol with the uh immunosuppressant drugs <laughs> that would be a big hinge for my <laughs> decision. But if I could still have a beer once in a while, I would get the face transplant. I would do it. You're a braver soul than me. I would not. <laughs> oh my goodness. I did uh, read the article you texted me. And I just want to oh, yeah. add to you. It takes 12 to 36 hours to, to do a face transplant surgery because they have to connect every single blood vessel in your face. And there's a lot of blood vessels in your face. <laughs> oh God, too much, too much. I'm like, listeners can't say this. So I'm just like crawling into my chair the moment we talk about <laughs> Uncomfortable. Are we ready to talk about Norai the Curse? Yes. Yes. Okay. So this came out in the US in 2005. A little synopsis. No matter how horrifying, I want the truth. It's the mantra of paranormal journalists, Masafumi Kobayashi, and he certainly commits to that. <laughs> Directed by Koji Shirashi, Norai the Curse follows Kobayashi investigating a case of a missing girl and a supposed demon, Kagutaba. Which feels weird even to say his name. I feel like I'm now haunting us all. <laughs> you have to bow and clap four times and then bow again. Don't worry. Should I do that on the pod? I don't know. I feel like that no. might actually summon <laughs> No. <laughs> I don't play around with that shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, so my favorite thing about this film is I love how the film is cut like a documentary. Obviously, it's a mockumentary, but it feels like a documentary that's in progress. And I like that it makes the audience feel like they're watching B-rolls in the editing room. And it feels inclusive in that way. And when you first watch it, everything seems accidental, like all these bits and pieces, but nothing is mm. accidental in this movie. Everything, I think, is tie directly into the plot line that follows but it doesn't feel like you're being spoon-fed like all of a sudden you're looking at a variety show like testing the psychic abilities of children and then the next shot you're like on the beat like talking to neighbors in this like small village to hear the whispers of what is kagutaba and i think that works so well and i think a lot of fun footage tries to do that and and i think they make it feel too polished so i'd love to hear both your thoughts about that approach did it work for you also how do we feel that throughout all the crazy shit that happens in this movie the filmmaker never puts the camera down he never drops it he's like just keep rolling just keep going i get hit in the head with a rock but keep going <laughs> i uh I, I love the like how it feels like a collage you know it's, it's taking like these these first person interviews and then the television shows and like even even within the television shows like you have like this like like you said, the, the weird kind of like experiments on, on children and like they have psychic powers. And then like, it's kind of more of like a, kind of like a funny like talk show. 
mm-hmm. thing with the woman visiting the super psychic, as she says. <laughs> and then the the late night show, where again we see the the guy. And so like I love how it really does like feel like it's just like splicing in like elements to like tell the story which I think is like a really cool format that like we don't see a lot of like found footage do it's kind of like taking like a mixed media approach in some ways and so like Mm -hmm. doing that which feels like very like modern and then like tying it with this kind of like ancient lore and then we have like tapestries kind of like showing how this ritual is done I feel like that's a really cool just like blend of like ancient folklore and kind of like you know our our modern approach to folklore Mm-hmm. what do you think Ryan yeah I love that I felt very similarly and I think the I think for me the best moment in the entire film is about an hour in when we meet Junko Ishii for the second time and we realize oh, yeah. that everything that we've seen to this point is connected to her in some way oh, so yeah. I think that's just like an oh shit moment that works mm-hmm. super super well um, and I love the, the the mixed media. I love that phrase too, by the way, for it, um, Richard. I love the mixed media. And I love, especially because like, I feel like when we're watching the variety show, I want to know if the kid can do it again too. And it's kind of slow at that point. So like, it keeps me in the story because like, I'm getting the pleasure I would get out of watching a variety show if it was just like a regular show because I'm not getting a ton of horror up to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is there... So I think uh, I was watching, I fell down another rabbit hole when I was watching uh, videos from a scented cinema earlier today. And I like that one of the videos described it as like, they argue that it's not phone footage, that it's like using realism and that's what gets us. Do you feel like any one of the particular real quote unquote real stories like worked better than others? I mean, I definitely think that like the kind of uh, the super psychic thing, like I feel like, mm we do see shows do that and I feel like sometimes we do see television take advantage of you know people who clearly have you know some mental health issues you know and, and even though of course like he does have a supernatural connection in, in in the movie I do think that like it's kind of like this interesting thing especially when you go on that like uh the variety show that's kind of geared towards like younger viewers like they seem very hip you know, one of the guys mm-hmm. has like spiked hair, the hosts, um, and just like the the girl that they send to his house, like just like unannounced, like it's not like it's like, you know, a scheduled appointment. Like it feels like very like TMZ, like yeah. we're gonna go to this super psychic's house and like see what he says. Like I feel like our media does do that, perhaps like increasingly so now, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like taking advantage of of people and kind of making a spectacle of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing that I like about that storyline, I, I agree. I don't think um, uh, Mitsu Hori, the super psychic is like my favorite segment <laughs> because it makes me uncomfortable uh, because of how they're yeah. treating him. But I like that at least the film gives him his due. Like, I like that he is always right. Like the joke mm-hmm. isn't on him. The joke's on everybody else. And I think especially since like mental health, health issues are and getting care for them is a big issue in Japan. I thought that was pretty radical for the time period uh, that it came out in. But yeah. What about you, Ryan? Was there a certain part of the collage that you're like, eh, I don't really need this piece? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I needed all the pieces of the collage. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it all felt unrealistic. But it all felt unrealistic in the way that, like like Richard said, like all reality TV feels unrealistic. It feels like there's a mm-hmm. producer giving this person wine from... 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then interviewing them 
yeah. and making them look ridiculous. But they're they've been drinking since like six in the morning. It's like of course they look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the demon. Kagutaba. <laughs> I'm really resisting the urge to clap four times, Ryan. You just know how I'm, I'm, I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I do love the idea that I don't think it's like unique to this film, but I love whenever there's like a demon or an entity in a film where it's so evil you can't even say it or you feel uncomfortable saying it, and that the film convinces you enough of the horror that in real life you have reactions like this. Like same thing with like incantation, which <laughs> um also makes me afraid to say certain phrases. Uh so I would love to hear if that it sounds like it works. It sounds like we're all in agreement that like the spirit and the anticipation of like how evil he is like works for everyone here yeah yeah and i feel like even after the movie he's still shrouded in mystery i think that's part of why it works like we don't get very solid answers about him or what he's doing we get hints and it's never really laid out in full because Mm -hmm. of the perspective we're in we only see the after effects not the main thing which i think Mm -hmm. is very very cool yeah what do you think richard yeah, and I I felt like with the ritual, like the ritual felt like so much like a documentary and like so believable that like I honestly like found found myself like glancing away at times. Like I felt like I this is like I shouldn't I shouldn't be watching this. Like mm-hmm. you know I don't want to I don't want to get whatever they're getting. Mm-hmm. And so like yeah, just like the ability of the film to to do that to like make like this like very convincing portrayal of this ritual. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that they have this, this part in the film where they explain the name of Kagutaba. I'm just going to keep saying it. If I'm, I'm already damned at this point. <laughs> um, and I love they break down the kanji characters and it's a disaster tool spirit. And they're like translated. He's like the spirit that will like, br- like create disaster, basically. And I love that after the documentary person figures this out, he still investigates. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, obviously, if he didn't, we wouldn't have a film. But there's not this moment of him being like, mm, no, I'm going to step back. This is getting too much. And then being like pressured by another force to get back into yeah. the game. Do you think that, was that believable? Do you believe in his commitment? Yeah. I, I also like, I loved how, like, as you said, like you see him research, um, you know, and it's not just yeah. like, I feel like in a lot of like found footage or like even horror movies, like you see someone go to the internet and like they do like their like off-brand Google search and then they have their, <laughs> they have their answer. Um, but like I love, you know, the the instance where he has that list of phone numbers that he's calling, you know, and he's to to find the, you know, the the, the history of the name. And, like he's crossing off each one. Like I love that you actually see like the diligent amount of research for that. And then he goes to the college and speaks to the professor. Like I feel like all of that made it feel a lot more realistic. Mm, yeah. I agree. And I I did want to see him talk to his producers at some point. And to see mm-hmm. like some outside pressure from producers. Cause I think that could have been another cool element. Yeah. Or like, see, I'd be really curious. I feel like it would, it would break, it would might, might break the format too much, but I was really curious to see maybe his wife have some sort of input. Mm. <laughs> we, we all know yeah. what happens to her. She's not farewell, but if you're doing this amount <laughs> <laughs> intense research like as we were saying like this this takes up your whole life like you're not going to be a very good husband at this point in time and i would have been curious to see her opinions about it 
whether she was super psyched and was like down to help him research or just resented the research. I think that would have been a cool layer, but maybe it would have taken us too much out of the mockumentary. I was definitely curious to like know if she like also believed in, in the supernatural like like he mm-hmm. did. Uh, like especially like if he's like bringing home like this like actress, you know, to come and stay with them, <laughs> you know? Okay, I would love to get his thoughts on that or her thoughts on that. Yeah. It's not weird. It's not weird. <laughs> um, and speaking of her, Marika Matsumoto is a Japanese actress playing herself in this film. She's the one in the Ghost Hunter vignette. She's also the voice of Riku in the Final Fantasy games. Fun fact. <laughs> um, so in one part of the film, she does the ritual at the dam, even though Hori is like, don't do it. This is bad. Uh, so do we think that when she's like in the boat at the dam doing the ritual, do you think that that actually saved her? Or do you think she's still possessed? And that, that was just like a harbinger for more doom to come after doing that. I think that everyone is getting bamboozled. And the ritual mm-hmm. they're doing to put the demon away is summoning the demon. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, But I don't know what it does to her. Yeah, we never find out. It's interesting, like at the end where, you know, she says that she's doing better and that like she's starting work again. And it like seems to cut to her. Like, I think it's a show that she's on, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like footage. It looks like it's a it's a show. But then it just like freeze frames on her face. But like, it doesn't feel comforting. You know, like it yeah. doesn't feel like a freeze frame of like, you know, she's okay. And she went on to like have a successful career. It feels like very like eerie and. Yeah, I I don't necessarily think that, you know, she she makes it out. It feels like the oh, it was on VH1 where it's like, where are they now? And it's like the the more tragic ones where it's like, well, they're dead now. And but like they have mm. the like the freeze frame and like they hold it and you're like, yeah. oh, this isn't going anywhere good. <laughs> yeah. So the film film's big red herring is that all this time we're thinking it's this mysterious neighborhood woman that is like possessed or connected to the demon, and it's actually the son that lives with her. Do you think that that holds up when that's revealed? Did it shock you? Yeah, I think it holds up. I thought what happened was that she summoned the demon into her kid. So I did think that she was still mm-hmm. the the big bad. Um, but I'm not sure about that. The way I read it, at least, was that like at the ritual, he was the boy that's like almost out of frame, but he's there. And that the summoning put the spirit into him but i don't know if she was aware of the summoning because this was like supposed to be a ritual to appease a demon so if it's really like a surprise it's summoning it i don't think she like was aware of it like i don't think there was like malicious intent there but i'm also reading into it because the film doesn't really tell us either yeah yeah i i assume that he was a a vessel and so i thought that she had like because they're not biologically related if they Mm. say that i thought that since she worked at that hospital where they're doing the illegal abortions, I thought that maybe she stole, you know, one of the the babies essentially, and like just like kept him like as like a, a vessel for this eventual ritual to take place. Mm. Um, yeah, I really like that. I like I love the idea of her like having more of a backstory too, because I almost totally forgot about her her work in the in the abortion clinic. I like that. I like that she steals a baby. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. I like that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, the only one that I had a question of was, had either of you seen a Japanese variety show before? I've seen segments. Yeah, I've seen segments too. 
Yeah. Okay. I highly recommend it's on Netflix. It's very, it's not uh, horror at all. <laughs> As I go to palate cleanser after this old enough, it's a show about toddlers doing errands and, but like the entire town is in on it. So like the producers speak ahead of time to everyone. So like there's these little toddlers, like on a little quest. And like one of the quests is like, your dad owns a ramen shop and he doesn't have his apron. He can't make ramen without the apron. And they're like, oh no. <laughs> and they have to like go on a little merry way to deliver the apron. And they'll sometimes wander into random stores and they'd be like, are you on a quest to bring the apron? And she's like, yeah, how did you know? And they're like, it's just so cute because they don't understand. Obviously this is all staged uh, because they're about four, some, some kind of clock it and they're a little confused and they'll start waving at the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's delightful so old enough watch it no kids get murdered in this one or or malicious entities <laughs> that i can tell no <laughs> oh, man so ryan did you have any closing thoughts on this or any other questions you want to bring up i love the fake credits with mm-hmm. like 30 mm-hmm. minutes left i love the preamble about how the footage is too scary to show i think that mm-hmm. worked it delivered on that too which i think works really well I thought the camera should have been less shaky because they're a professional documentary crew. Mm. We should revisit your question about putting the camera down though. Mm. I mm. think there's one scene that does it really well where the it's uh, Mitsuki runs from the car and the cameraman follows her with the uh, camera and then yeah. he turns the light on. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really good moment where like it answered that question of why the camera's still going. I think that worked really well. But I think the scene at the end with the rock, the guy killing the trying to kill the kid with the rock and the the adopted father is just filming. Like mm-hmm. put the use two hands to fight him. Please <laughs> use two hands to fight the armed man who's trying to kill your child. One hand truth, is not enough. The truth can't wait. <laughs> he's he's uh by any cost, right? He needs to find the truth, even if it's horrific. <laughs> yeah. No man. So I guess what would be fun to think about is how do you think this film handles the face, this figured face reveal versus like how Eyes Without a Face, which is a bit, I guess, a bit more literal on the trope handles right. it? You, which one do you think does it better? The thing that I like about this one is that like the, you know, I almost feel like it's kind of like it's it's masked upon masks. And what I mean by that is so like the, you know, one of the early times we see it is during like psychic child evaluation and she mm-hmm. draws the mask on the dry erase board which is like really haunting and so then it's just like it's seeing that image and then like going deeper to like what's behind that image and that's like you know her her psychic abilities but also like her connection to hori and like her you know parents getting killed so it's like it's like each time we see the mask we're kind of like removing it and looking and seeing something evil until we get to you know the the answer uh in some ways and so and you know I kind of see this like it's it's not only just like the disfigured face that we see of the boy at the end. It's kind of just like this like disfiguring of a community like mm. through mm. decades, uh, which I think is, is is really interesting because we we see the effects of this ritual, you know, over this whole community and like all of these people kind of affected by it. And so it's kind of like just like extrapolating this this idea of what's behind the mask. Mm-hmm. I love that. I had not connected the disfigurement of the the boy to the, I mean, he's not really disfigured, but the masking of the boy to the disfigurement of the community. I think it's a great moment. And I love that it's the, the reverse of what we normally see. Because normally we see a mask taken off to reveal, but 
Mm. In this movie, we see the mask put on to reveal, which I think is very cool. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that both these films, this was unintentional, but they both kind of play with the idea of like innocence because they're both young. The people that are Mm. revealed that are both killers are younger. And I think they're saying different things. Like, I I do think that kind of like riffing on what like Richard was just saying that I think Nora the Curse is more about like maybe how like over time like these legends and these like stories that were passed on in the community broke apart to the point where some people didn't even remember the demon's name there was confusion over what whether this was like a summoning or a banishing ritual there is like all this forgotten history and then i think like there's really this power in seeing like the kid being the evil because it's almost like this it's like this foreboding sense of like what like future generations will bring if they like don't know their history in a way yeah like i think that's that's pretty powerful i'm curious what you all will think about the the eyes out of face like the implications of that masking and unmasking um because i feel like we didn't touch on that one too too much so i think eyes out of face well i think norai feels different to me because i think norai feels inevitable i think junko ishii is doing all this work outside of the film and she's the real mover of the film, even though she's only in it for like 10 minutes, because I think she steals the aborted fetuses and she sacrifices them to the psychic girl to bring this demon. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like what's happening is inevitable for everyone else. And they're just kind of researching and having it revealed. Mm. I think in uh, Eyes Without a Face, it's more doc- the doctor father is pushing really hard. And I think he's forcing the mask on his daughter because she doesn't like the mask, especially with that line where she says, like, I don't know what's scarier, my face or my mask. Mm. And he was the one who got her into the car accident. So I feel like she's less complicit. But I also think in in Eyes uh, of the Face, they're actively making choices that shape the ending of the film. Where in Nora, mm. it's kind of just like the car is rolling down the hill. There are no brakes. Yeah, you can't stop a yeah. curse. A curse is inevitable kind of thing. Yeah. And I think like on that subject of choice too, it's also interesting that like when Christiane like does free herself, you know, symbolically opening all of these cages in the house and then also walking out of the house herself, she doesn't take the mask off. Mm. Which I think is yeah. kind of interesting as well. Like I think at the end, like I do think that she feels some responsibility for what happened. So I don't know if she feels that like keeping the mask is like a form of like punishment on its own mm. or what but I, I do think it's interesting that like with everything like kind of like being released in her and her finding this freedom she doesn't take off the thing that frightens her the most yeah yeah it's yeah it's so strange because I feel like it, it feels like a sense of protection by keeping the mask on but also fears her protection and that's terrifying concepts <laughs> she's just going to be living in fear while she's free but not really free like she's still she's still kind of in a way like thinking of it that way now I, I i feel like it lessens some of her like like ending note of freedom like in some ways i think she's still equally damned just like in a different way we could even think of those silhouettes of, of trees as bars you know like is Ooh. she just like leaving mm-hmm. one cage to a, another cage in some ways yeah yeah i could definitely see that like why I think it makes a lot of sense that it ends in darkness too, because there's not really, there's not really hope for her in this storyline, at least. Unless we get a miniseries, <laughs> then we'll see what happens. 
Does anyone have any closing thoughts on masking and disfigured face reveals or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get into? I have one thing just about masks in general. Because I don't think either film really hits on it. But I think a really important thing about masks, especially did you all ever work a job where you had a uniform? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you you feel too? Because I've worked lots of those. (laughs) Where it's like almost freeing to be in a uniform. Like when I have my star market hat on, I am a produce clerk, not a person. And it allows me to just kind of like turn off and stack apples for the next eight hours. I feel like masks have that quality too, where they kind of just allow you to be the person the mask looks like. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. Like the kind of like freedom that a mask provides. You know, I kind of think of I don't know if you guys saw the movie Hellfest. Yeah, uh, yeah. slasher that came out a few years ago. I'm like the end, like spoilers, but you like find out that it's just like a normal guy with like a kid, like he's a dad, and yet like this whole night that he's been you know just like killing with this mask on it so it's almost like you know it's like this like secret that he has this like secret life that he can be a part of with the mask on which i think is really interesting but then i also think like going to this idea of like uniforms you know i I thought a lot about like cops and their place in horror and how i think that like you know sometimes the the badge and the uniform it allows for like a certain inhumanity that we see with cops right they they don't see themselves you know as just another you know ordinary citizen which i feel like is part of the like psychological issue in terms of the relationship between you know cops and and civilians is that it does kind of allow them to have a lack of empathy allow them to you know have have a gun and, and and use it in a way that i think that you know someone without a uniform without a badge wouldn't or would you know, use more discretion with. And so I think that that's really interesting too when we kind of like get around like how certain uniforms I think affect certain morals. Yes. And the cops with eyes without a face are so horrible. They're terrible. <laughs> like the girls shoplift and they're like, we will use you as bait for this <laughs> face stealing murderer. Don't shoplift again. What? <laughs> Yeah, they killed her. In my in my opinion, they yeah. killed. Her. <laughs> and then when they show up to the house, like the doctor's like, "No, we haven't we haven't seen her. You know, she's been discharged." And they're just like, "All right." And like it gets to the point where like, okay, well, like she's about to get her face sliced off. Mm-hmm. Like you guys are like way too late and like not invested at all. And like, what happens to her? <laughs> That's all I have on my end. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a lovely discussion. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Do you have anything of yours coming out that you would like to plug or excited to talk about work-wise? No, I'm just uh, writing for Hollywood Reporter. Um, I have a big end-of-the-year horror article coming up. Um, I also write for Fangoria, the January issue. will be out in a few weeks, and I have an article on there about the history of plant horror. Uh, (laughs) which is kind of which is kind of fun and then i also have a collection of short stories horror short stories called we make monsters here and that's available on amazon and my twitter handle is at richard l newbie awesome that'll be a perfect holiday gift for horror listeners (laughs) we make monsters here get your copy now thanks everyone for listening and join us again next month when we talk with miguel myers from my horror confessional about the new movie dropping on shutter Who's Sarah? <laughs>